I remember my favorite Mother's Day quote on mine is, and I, I've mentioned this on Easter before, <clears throat> so forgive me if, if you've heard it before, but she stood up, she's uh, on staff at my dad's church over in Pasco, and on Easter Sunday, right, with the crowd, everybody in attendance, this is the biggest, biggest service of the year. She says, we gathered here today to celebrate the erection of Christ. <laughs> my dad's in the front row going, mm. She swears, she got down and he's like, you said erection of Christ? She's like, I did not. Watch the tape, you did. Anyways, love my mama. Texted her this morning, told her I loved her. I also got my wife some flowers for Valentine's, or not Valentine's Day. Curve <clears throat> that back, I got it, uh, some for Mother's Day. But I did something different this year. Usually I buy her the flowers that, uh, that uh, go in the vase and then they die in like two weeks. And I was like, why would I do that? I don't, I don't want something that dies. I want to buy you something that, you know, you can keep alive. And so I bought her these flowers that go in this pot that has been empty in our, on our front patio. <clears throat> but the problem I realized later on is that uh, I do nothing in terms of like watering flowers or anything like that, right? Um, so basically what I did was, happy Mother's Day, here's one more thing for you to keep alive. <laughs> My kids, their dogs, and now these plants. So happy Mother's Day to you moms out there. Welcome to uh, part four of our series, Who Needs God? It's been a series that we, uh, if you're first time today, or you came because it's Mother's Day and this was cheaper than buying a gift or chocolates or whatever, and she loves it as well, then that, that's great too. Um, but it's been a series really about questioning uh, or challenging uh, this idea, or for, for some of us who have kind of walked away from, from God or walked away from faith or have kind of wandered or just got distracted or just, I don't know if I need, do I really need God now? I mean, I've got a pretty good life in the way that I've I've done it, and so we're kind of challenging. It's been a really an invitation to reconsider Christianity. If you've walked away or are walking away from faith in Christ, then this is our invitation to call you back and, and have you potentially reconsider. So <clears throat> because it's part four, that means there's three parts that have led up to this, and all of them have been uh, challenging and um, difficult. And so I, I think to fully appreciate, because I'm going to make, I'm going to jump to some conclusions today, assuming that you've been a part of the first three. If you haven't, here's a website. You can go to eastlaketricities.com slash talks. So if, if some of this doesn't make sense, then perhaps listen to the first three, and then you can re-listen to this one. Then it'll all make sense. But let me do just a, a general recap is that um, there are a category of people, a growing category of people, 35% uh, of millennials, 25% of general population who identify as none when it comes to religious identification. So if they were asked to survey, are you, you know, uh, are you Christian, Buddhist, Islam, uh, or a category, uh, or even atheist, right? But <clears throat> I'm not atheist, but I'm not Christian. I'm just kind of a nun. And the motto, the unofficial motto is, I don't know, it doesn't matter, uh, just be ethical, go light on God, everybody's connected. Um, that's kind of been, the, the, and, that, and a lot of times, this is the type of people who walk through the doors of this church, where you're kind of uniquely targeted towards these people. Not that if, you're, if you identify as a Christian that you, you won't like it or enjoy it or whatever, but one of the reasons that you probably do like it is because you have friends who are nuns, and you feel no hesitation inviting them to a setting like this because you know, they're probably going to enjoy themselves if nothing else. We've said that we want to be a church, but we don't typically like church. That's the nuns. That's the category. And we said, there are tons of reasons why you walked away. Maybe it was because you read a book. Maybe you watched a documentary. Maybe you watched Last Week Tonight with John Oliver or, or read something or went to a, a history class at CBC. And there's a teacher who told you, challenged you on your faith and challenged you on the Bible and told you the Bible says some things and contradicts itself and isn't true. And there's this, that, and that, and the other thing. And it just didn't... <laughs> 
and, and even in your own personal experience, re- religion didn't quite match up with reality for you. And so you walked away. And perhaps, this is the thesis of this whole series, perhaps you walked away unnecessarily. Perhaps you walked away from a version of Christianity or a version of God that wasn't real. And so good for you. But that doesn't mean that there isn't a true God, that there isn't a truth out there that could be worth your time and worth investigating and worth discovering. So that's it. Last week, we made a really big uh, jump. And if you missed that, you do definitely listen to that one. Because what we said is, if you walked away from Christianity because of something the Bible said or something that was in there that you just couldn't reconcile with reality, then perhaps you walked away unnecessarily because Christianity thrived for 300 years without before the existence of what we know as the Bible. When Christianity launched, it wasn't because the book started the movement. The movement produced the book, or what we said is this. The Bible did not create Christianity. Christianity is the reason the Bible was created. Christianity had existed for almost 300 years before somebody, this council that Constantine kind of put together, said, you know what? There are a lot of kind of writings out there. We should kind of decide which ones we think are divine, which ones come from some sort of a divine inspiration versus other ones that are just kind of interesting to read. Let's compile them together. And Ta Biblia didn't come out until 388 AD, over 300 years after the birth of the church, which probably took place after the death and burial and resurrection of Christ in about 30 AD. So what we says, what we said is, if you If you need to set this aside for a moment, what you need to realize is Christianity began because of an event, not because of a book. That doesn't mean that the book isn't valuable to us. I hope that you didn't walk away going, Brent hates the Bible. Listen, I I read more than you do. I promise you, I promise you, okay? I love the Bible. I love what, especially the Old Testament speaks of. There's a lot of things in the Old Testament that that are confusing, that kind of depict a God that maybe you walked away from because you're like, I just don't, I don't know that I could believe in a God who exists like that. I understand. <clears throat> Jesus took the Old Testament seriously. And Jesus, when he was walking with his disciples and kind of teaching them and training them, after he rose from the dead, he had this uh, walk to Emmaus with these two people. And he begins to talk about the Old Scriptures and uh, the Old Testament Scriptures. And when he did, he said, don't you see me present in all of this? Don't you see the thing that's missing has now been made known through my existence? In other words, the, old, the value that the Old Testament has for us is it points us towards Jesus. And then as we're going to learn today, if that's true, then wouldn't it be, wouldn't the best source for what do we know about God, what is God like, would that not come best through the person of Jesus rather than potentially what we read about in the Hebrew scriptures? That doesn't mean that there's not value there. It just points us towards Jesus, which he then, he himself claims to give, say, I have the clearest picture for what God is like. Let me tell you what God is like. In fact, what we're going to look at today comes from uh, a guy by the name of John who writes one of the four gospels. The New Testament starts off with these books, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. The collection of those four is known as the gospels. However, there, there is a breakdown even, even amongst the four gospels. Then it goes down even further to you have the three synoptic gospels. Syn meaning like a synthesis or a collection or uh, an optic is optical. We can see things to see together. Synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And the reason that they're called the synoptic gospels 
is because all three of them essentially tell the same story about Jesus, right? The timelines are fairly similar. I mean, there's a few stories that might be moved around, but pretty much Jesus enters Jerusalem, and then then he does ministry up in Galilee, and then he comes back to Jerusalem, and everything kind of plays out right. Interestingly, the book of John, John's version of the story of the life and the teaching of Jesus comes last. It was, it was written much, not much later, but later it was the last book to be written of the four things. Now, then it begs the question, if there are already three accounts of somebody's life and teaching, I know he's great, I know he's Jesus, but if there's already three accounts, why would you write a fourth? Why would you feel the need to say, you know what this world needs is another story about Jesus. I mean, I'm glad it was written, but why? You have to think about the motives for this. I think that the reason that John wrote, the, reason, the only reason that you would write something when three things already exist in its place would be because you probably felt like what was presented was a bit incomplete. It was a bit unclear, and I'm striving for, for clarity on a specific point about Jesus. I think that John, the reason that he attempted to write a story about the teaching and life of Jesus was because something that was missed or something wasn't focused on in those first three accounts that he felt like was important. Because John is one of the disciples of Jesus who was closest to Jesus. Matthew was one of his disciples too, but not when, when it comes to like, when, when, whenever a story takes place with Jesus and he's like, they went on a boat and Jesus called all of his disciples, but then he kind of went off with Peter, James, and John. The, he's part of like the big three, basically. And he knows Jesus probably more than any of those other disciples and any of the other gospel writers. Mark probably got his information from Peter, but it was secondhand. Luke wasn't even one of Jesus' disciples. He was a doctor who had the literary ability to write some of this, so he felt like he should. John has this core thing, and he probably felt like something was missed, therefore I need to write. And what does he write about Jesus? In the beginning, he starts off his, his, his letter or his introduction to Jesus by saying this, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God. The logos was with God, and, and the word was God. And, he, and then he talks about how Jesus uh, came down. He was God incarnate. And Eugene Peterson writes in, in a brilliant way in his message version of the Bible, he made his way into the neighborhood. He set up his camp in the neighborhood, that God didn't exist in the kind of out there existence, but made himself known in the here and the now through the person of Jesus. And then John summarizes his thoughts. And I think the reason why I'm writing this in verse 18 of chapter one and here's what he says. Nobody has ever seen God, but the, only, but the one and only son who is himself God and is in closest relationship to the father has made him known. In other words, the reason I feel compelled to write this letter about Jesus is because his existence gives us the clearest and most distinct features or picture of what God is like. We have other stuff. We have other stories. We have some of them are maybe legendary. Some of them may be true. Some of them may be historical. Some of them may be, that's what the people needed to know. A lot of times in the Old Testament, God is described as kind of unknowable and unsearchable. When David writes his Psalms in, in uh, uh, Psalm chapter 92, verse five, how great are your works, how profound are your thoughts, how unsearchable are your ways. God kind of exists in this, in this awe-worthy, out there, bigger than us, cannot be known by our feeble minds. And yet what John says essentially in his thesis is God has made himself known through the person of Jesus. So if I said a couple of weeks ago, 
Perhaps you walked away from a God who doesn't exist, right? Boyfriend God, uh, all, all of the, 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 the various versions of God, the bodyguard God, the God who doesn't allow bad things to happen to good people, boyfriend God whose presence is always felt. Then what does God really look like? What is the God who I should not walk away from? Good for you for walking away from those versions of God. What versions of God should keep me here? What does Jesus have to say about God? That's what we're talking about. That's the point of today. So, and, and so John claims this in his thesis. Here's why I'm writing this. And then he actually puts this into the words of Jesus as well. He says, I didn't come up with this. I'm not smart enough to do that. But let me tell you what Jesus said about himself. John chapter 14, verse seven. If you really know me, you will know my father as well. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Oh, no, no, no. Jesus, we don't see the father. We grew up in, you know, the Old Testament says uh, that his presence cannot be made known to humankind because then you'll just die in his presence because you're so unworthy of this. And Jesus says, makes this claim, from now on you do know him and have seen him. All of those images and pictures of what God is like, if you know me, you will know the Father. This, you may not realize this, this is a very uh, distinct claim. It's a very dangerous claim. When I get up here and I get a chance to talk to you on a weekly basis and we try and open up scripture and figure out what God wants us to do in, all, in light of certain situations of life and series, whenever I approach you, I, I, try and, I try and come across as here's kind of a, an opinion. It's an educated opinion. I hope that I've done enough homework and research to be able to tell you what I think scripture leads us to believe and uh, about what God is like. But I, I would be remiss to say, Thus saith the Lord, this is exactly what God is like. You can trust me, right? That would be blasphemous. You should leave this church if I, if I ever did that. You know what I mean? I, I've tried to always be like, I think this is, this is Brent's opinion. Um, take it for what it's worth. Uh, chew the meat, spit out the bones, whatever. That's fine. But Jesus doesn't allow any room for that. And it bugs the people who are listening, it's, which is his disciples. He's in an intimate conversation with them. And he's having this, this, this dialogue with them. And he says, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father, which then generates a response from Philip. Philip says this in response, Lord, show us the Father, and that'll be enough for us. In other words, I'm going to give you an out. You just made a claim that is pretty difficult. Um, so all we're going to ask from you is some sort of a picture of God. They call it a theophany. In, in, in Old Testament scripture. Show us, let there be a sign, some sort of a miracle. If we walk outside and there's like a bright light or if, if something happens that just can't be explained away through kind of nat natural means, then that would be enough for us. We need a sign, we need a miracle, we need a something. And Jesus, here's his response to, to Philip's thing. Don't you know me, Philip? Even after I've been among you such a long time, anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. He's not, he's like, I'm not going to take your out. I'm going to build on it. If you've seen me, you've seen the father. The words I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority. Rather, it is the father living in me who is doing his work. Something that you need to realize about this, this story, this conversation that was supposedly had between the disciples and Philip's, you know, conversation back with him and all that kind of stuff is not recorded in Matthew, Mark, or Luke. It only appears in the book of John. Why? John felt like this was important, and perhaps the earlier gospel writers missed it. But don't you realize, 
Jesus' claim to being the authority figure with enough authority to speak on God's behalf about God for God is something that cannot be swept under the rug and cannot be missed. He says this happened. Jesus said this kind of crazy statement that he demands that we believe and basically says this. If you want to know what God says, listen to me. If you want to know what God is up to, watch me. Okay, Jesus. So what is God like? If we are to take our picture of what God is like, primarily, not solely, that's not to, I'm not discrediting the entire Old Testament, but primarily, this is the lens by which we view everything else, then give us a picture of what God is like. And he says, I'll be glad to do it. And there's a few instances where I think his picture of God shines through more clearly than in other places. There's probably more, I'm going to give you three, but there's probably 12, 20, I don't know, something like that. But here's kind of the big three. Number one is God is spirit. In ancient civilizations, God existed amongst a people group. He existed or, or lived in a temple, a tabernacle, a temple of some sort. And Jesus has this conversation one day with a woman in Samaria. We know her as the woman at the well. She probably had a name, but it was never recorded for us, so that's all she gets in this one, right? And he, he leads his disciples up to Galilee. They're about to make their way back down to Jerusalem, but instead of going on the west side of the Jordan River, which is Israel, they go on the east side, which is kind of like the outcast. It's like the hinterlands. It's called Samaria. These are people who uh, were Jewish at one point, but they intermarried with other religions and other races and other people, and that was like the big no-no, and so therefore they were kind of excommunicated. They were in the Badlands or whatever. So Jesus goes through there because he wants to avoid all the crowds of its popularity on the west side of the Jordan River. So he goes on the east side of the Jordan River through Samaria. He shows up in the city, in this city, <clears throat> and goes to uh, this, the well, which is probably in the center of the kind of area, right? This is where everybody would come and get their water so that they could live. He goes, in the heat of the day, there's a woman there. She probably goes there because she's ashamed. She doesn't want to go when there's crowds there, which is in the cool of the day. I'm going to go in the heat of the day when there's nobody there, and I can avoid talking to anybody because probably felt like an outcast. Jesus sees her, says, would you get me a drink? She gets him a drink. He begins to talk about, uh, and this is in uh, John uh, chapter 4, if you want to look it up later. <clears throat> he begins to talk about um, the water that I offer will cause people to never thirst again. He's speaking of this eternal like longing and a desire. People are always chasing after something, and then when they get it, they just find themselves hungry for more, right? And it's not talking about food necessarily, but fulfillment in life. You're always chasing something. You think it's going to be the next house or the next car or the next job or the next wife or the next this, and then you get it, and you realize, oh, it wasn't that. It's, it's that. And then he begins to say, I offer the only thing, the only solution to quench that unquenchable desire for more. And she's intrigued. Her interest is piqued. And she says, tell me more about this. <clears throat> she recognizes that he's Jewish. And so she asks him a religious, a, a current religious topical issue. It's not a big deal for us now, but they had this idea. They felt like they were excommunicated from the Jewish system. So they came up with their own way of connecting with God through a mountaintop experience, um, which is the same. They, so Jerusalem had Mount Sinai. That's where God revealed the law to Moses. These guys had uh, Mount uh, Rephism or, or something like that. So 
it was, it was a different mountaintop. Which one is God a part of? She asked this kind of cultural thing of the day. And, and Jesus responds not by picking one side or the other, but by changing it up completely. He says this, God is spirit, and his worshipers must worship in the spirit and in truth. Essentially saying he's not in either of those things. God is not a place confined to real estate on earth. God is immaterial. He's transcendent. He's supranatural. Not supernatural because that freaks people out and makes you think of weird churches with snakes and you know people falling down and saying weird stuff. But supranatural. In other words, cannot be explained by natural reasons or causes or whatever. The singularity, the uncreated creator, the first cause. In other words, exactly what us modern people would imagine God to be like. If you are not, if you're a nun, if you're not religious and whatever, and, and I ask, okay, but imagine that there did exist a God. What would you think he would be like? Well, he would probably have to be transcendent above reality. He would ha- probably have to be not confined to a place or a church or a denomination or a religion, but kind of bigger than that. Oh, so he would have to be spirit, which is exactly what Jesus describes when he gets a chance to talk about God. Let me tell you what I know about God. He's not confined to a space. He's bigger than that. He's supranatural. Number two, God is father. Here's what I mean by this. Because when I say that God is spirit, it can feel like he's transcendent and he's far away. But at one point, Jesus prays in the presence of his disciples. And when he gets done praying, they say to him, you got to teach us how to pray like you pray. Have you ever been around somebody who the way that they, they just seem like more, maybe it was a grandpa for you or uh, some religious person in your church and they'd get up and they would, I, they would pray in such a way you're like, see, that's prayer. So what I do feels like mumbling and jumbling and I fall asleep and it doesn't make any sense. And I'm like, I'm like apologizing for how bad I pray. Sorry about that, Jesus. I, I'll, I'll figure it out someday, but I'm not very good at this. <clears throat> and then when they pray, you're like, oh, teach me how to do things the way that you do them. The disciples do that with Jesus. They go, teach us how to pray. This is captured in Luke's account of Jesus. And Jesus then turns to them and says, all right, when you pray, here's how you should pray. And then he gives them what we know as the Lord's Prayer, which you maybe memorized as a kid, or it's been on some sort of a cross-stitch thing at your grandma's house or whatever. But our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And he says, when you start off your prayer, yes, you're praying to first cause, the singularity, the creator, the uncreated creator of the world. But when you do that, (coughs) instead of going, instead of starting with this, oh, awesome father who exists far beyond our imagination, our realm, he says, you begin your prayers with father. He pulls the most intimate term possible. He says, Abba, father. It was a common term for people who had a great relationship with their dad in that culture, and they would say, this, this is a good dad, a good dad who deserves to be called Abba. They had other terms for father, but this was the most intimate. This was when you actually were loving a father who deserved the respect that fathers deserve. 
And this has nothing to do with gender. And, and God is not male. It, it, it could be God is mother. But there's, but what he's saying is there's, there was a word in that culture that defined a closeness, a relationality that uh, felt almost, that felt special. It felt personal. And Jesus says, if I could describe God for you, yes, he'd be transcendent. Yes, he'd be material. He'd be all of that stuff in terms of supernatural. He'd be spirit. But that spirit is also personal. It's also known. And he knows you. And it's father. And I don't know what kind of a father figure you had. And I've said this before and so many times. It doesn't, it doesn't matter. You know what a father, even if you had a bad father figure, you know what a father figure should be like. And and maybe you decided this is the kind of father that I'm going to be, or this is the kind of husband that I'm, this is the kind of guy that I want to marry, and this is the kind of dad that I want for my kids or whatever. You know that there's a personal connection there. And in that, that kind of a father doesn't need his attention to be captured. Like, hey, 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 dad, dad, dad. Those kind of a fathers are already there. Those kind of fathers are all, they already have their eyes on the child. They're waiting for them to turn. They're waiting for you to turn. So, so this, is, this is for us. This is when we'd be like, okay, I'm not really good at prayer. I, I get it, because maybe you've been taking the approach of, it's been like this distant, ooh, and I, I've, I've never known the right words to be like, how unsearchable are your ways? How transcendent are you? And yet, we're invited to call him father. And I'm sorry that, I'm not breaking down emotionally because I'm thinking of my dad. Uh, I picked up smoking this week, and it's, I've been just, just chugging through them. So, no, I'm just kidding. Fighting the cold, not smoking. Lastly, God is love. <clears throat> and this sounds like almost sappy. It sounds like, okay, this is what you expect to do in a church like this, and yeah, God is love, and we should lo love everything. But I don't think that we fully grasp the unique claim to this as it actually exists in history. If you have ever thought, if a God did exist, my God is a God of, of, of love. My God would be, um, and I'm not trying to create my own God that kind of fits my thing, but of what I've seen, it's not a God of anger and vindication, but of love. If you've ever thought that my God is loving, then what you should know is that it is a distinctly Christian idea, and it began right here. John writes letters. Uh, John wrote his gospel. This is like my memoir about who Jesus was and my time with him. And then later on, he's connected to a church in Ephesus, and he writes letters to them, and those letters are captured for us. They're, they're different because they're not written memoir style. They're written like instruction style or didactic teaching, if you want to get technical on it. And in his first letter to this church in Ephesus, chapter four, he writes, God is love. What I know about Jesus and what he claimed to be a re direct reflection of the Father, of all of my time thinking about this, what I know about Jesus was that he was captured and enamored with love. Ironically, John probably wrote this while he was in exile on an island called Patmos, which is like this prison island that they would send people to. Domitian went through this, uh, was the emperor of Rome at the time, and then through this time where they uh, persecuted the church, and they started killing a bunch of people, but then 
they, they realize by killing people, we're just making martyrs of them. And it's actually feeding more and more people to be like, well, then if they're willing to die for it, that must be worth investing my life into. So instead of killing people, he exiled him to this prison island. And he even wrote letters from this. And he's writing that God is, if I could think of one thing to write about what God would be like based on what I know about Jesus, God is love. Yes, I'm suffering from you know, obe- obedience to him and, and, and writing about what I know about him on this prison island, but I cannot shake this feeling. Every time I think about Jesus and his interactions with me and his interactions with his disciples and inter- in his interactions with people in general, it was characterized by love. And any chance he got a chance to describe what it would be like to follow him in his footsteps, he said this, and this was in his gospel writings. People will know that you are my disciples by the way that you love one another. John writes this over and over and over again. When I think about Jesus, I think about love. I think about his call to action, his call to love. His call to love those who were created by God, who God loved them. God is love. Whoever lives in love, I'll finish that verse out, verse, chapter four, verse 16. Whoever lives in love lives in God, in God in them. Why? Because it reflected the nature of God. Everything I can think about of the essence of God was <clears throat> love. So, which leads us to a question, right? If we feel like God is love, then what about all of the evil that is in the world. If God is the creator, sustainer of all of everything, then, then why do I read the news or flip on Twitter and look at all the stuff that's taking place across society, whether it's uh, racial or socioeconomic or uh, things that are happening in Syria or things that are persecution of the church worldwide, all of these things, why is there evil in the world? Which is a good question, one I'll probably, I, I want to address next week. So give me, give me one week to develop my argument for that. But a better question, one that I want to draw your attention to this week in light of the fact that Jesus says God is love, why do you recognize there is evil in the world? How are you able to look at the world and be like, see, there's just the problem. The reason that I walked away from Christianity is because I can't believe in a God of love because of how much evil exists in the world. Okay. How do you know that the world is bad? How do you know that it's not right? Listen, your awareness that something is broken means that you have a mental picture of it being unbroken. I want to say that again. It's on the screen too. Next slide. Your awareness that something is broken means that you have a mental picture of it being unbroken. You know what it looks like to be not broken. So now that you look at it, it's broken. Let me, let me illustrate it in this way. Um, whenever there is something wrong with my car and I'm driving along and my wife's we're in, you know, going to somewhere, doing something fun with as a family, and all of a sudden I hear something, I feel something, something's not responding right. What do I do? I flip the blinker on, I pull over to the side of the road, I flip up the hood, and I look at it like this. Hmm. And I'm, I'm trying to, and it, it, by the way, it does nothing for me. I know nothing about cars. Flipping up the hood and looking at it, maybe like you, means nothing to me. Why? Because I know nothing about what it should look like. Should be like, it, I, I'm, you know, start, can, can you start the car? Can you push the gas? It all looks normal to me. I know it's not operating normally, but some, I don't know what, I don't know what the right thing looks like. So I call up a mechanic buddy and I say, come take a look at it. He knows what it's supposed to look like and says, 
That's exactly what's wrong with it, all right? On a more practical example, <clears throat> do you remember a couple of years ago uh, when the Seahawks were in the Super Bowl? I hate to even bring it up because it was the one that we lost, but do you remember when Jeremy Lane comes down and his, his arm hits on the ground and then this, this part goes this way and this part goes this way and they didn't try and replay it all that often because they're pretty good at that in terms of instant replay, but you're like, you watch, you pick any pick football season. I mean, there's injuries that take place in football that you watch on TV and you think, hey, I'm no doctor, but that's broken. <laughs> I'm no doctor, but he's out next week. I don't need to wait for an injury report, right? Your kid has come up to you from the playground and their arm looks just shattered and you're like, I'm no doctor, but that's not good. You need to go. Why? How do you know that it's broken? Because you know what it's supposed to look like. If you don't know what it's supposed to look like, then you would never know that it's broken. How do you know that the world is evil? How do you know? Why do you live with this? Why do you live with this thing that when you read things that have taken place across the world that come across our newsfeed, your heart breaks and you think that's not right? How do you know? Christianity has an answer for that. Christianity would say, that, that love has been imprinted on you from a creator who is love. And so therefore, your heart breaks because you know that this isn't how the world is supposed to be. Now, from a biological standpoint, if all thing is just random, then the essence would be, this is just another random occurrence of things, and this is what you should expect when... I, I, I get it. I, I understand that there's ethics, and I'm not saying that science hasn't, you know, doesn't have an answer for this question. It, it, I'm sure it does. But I think Christianity offers a better answer, an answer that says you are created by a God of love who imprinted that desire, that craving for love to be a recipient of divine love and a dispenser of love through grace to those around us. And so therefore, when you see something is broken, it's because you are loved you are, you are created to be loved and to be a dispenser of love. So what is God like, Jesus? Tell us what God is like. Well, he's spirit. I mean, he's bigger than you and I and, and, and um, cannot be figured out completely by our mind. Yes, he's not confined to a space, but he's also father. He's also personal. He also loves his kids and wants to be in relationship with them. And thirdly, and probably not finally, but at least thirdly, God is love. And the way, the way that we can be in great relationship with him is to love those that he cares about. Listen, if you want to be in relationship with me, I've got three kiddos, right? You don't have to love me. I, I will like you and love you based on the way that you love my kids. Listen, if you mistreat my kids, I don't care how much you love me. I will not like you. You know, you know what I mean? Why then would we consider any different when it comes to God? It would be impossible for us to say, well, I love you. I just don't love all the people that you, that you created and love. I don't love your kids. I just, can we be right? Can we be okay? He's like, no, it's not how it works. It's not how it works. It's more than that. It's harder than that. 
that would be easy. Just say some prayer and, sorry about that, God, and we're back on track. It's a lot harder to live out what it would look like if God is love. So my homework for you <clears throat> would be this. Don't take my word for it. Read for yourself. John, better than any of the other gospel writers and probably better than any of the other books, gives us the clearest picture or writes with the intention to show us what God is like through the person of Jesus. I would love for you to read. I had somebody uh, a couple of weeks ago, her name's Betsy. I, I didn't see her walk in, but she might be here. But she emailed me um, midweek and just said, I, I'm in that nun category. I'm one of those people, uh, but I'm coming back and I'm, I'm really enjoying it. And I'm loving my time and I'm really kind of pursuing things for me. <clears throat> and I want to know what to do next. What, I want to read my Bible, but I understand, I understand uh, that I have lots of kind of ignorance, self self-owned ignorance on this, and I don't, I want to start right. So tell me, what do I start? What do I do? And I said, I, and I told her the same thing I tell everybody. Start with, start with John. I think it gives us the biggest picture of who Jesus was and what he describes Jesus, or God as. <clears throat> and I said, I've got a, I've got a book. It's, it's really small. It's, we used to give them away um, when we started the church, when people would, we used to have people mark on their connect card, I'm starting my faith with, you know, walk with Christ, and we'd send them this book. We don't do that anymore, but I, I said, here's a book. And I, and I thought about it. I'm like, we need to get this for everybody. So I went on Amazon this week and I bought like 30 or 50, I can't remember, Gospel of John, short, cheap, cost me like two bucks a piece books that I want to give to you for you to read through. Now, here's the only problem. I didn't read the fine print on Amazon checkout. It said Prime. I assume Prime meant gets here in two days. I ordered them on Tuesday. It says we'll ship in one to two months. So that sucks, Right. So yes, I bought you a book of John. No, it's not here yet. Blame Amazon, not me, okay? However, the beauty of it is you can get everything on the internet today. So you can Google, or better yet, download a free Bible app called YouVersion Bible app. We'll send it out this week and the weekly. You'll, you'll see a link to it. And I would love for you to read the book of John. And I said, and you, I know you're going, oh, dude, I'm not a book person. I haven't read a book in 12 years. I, I get it. It's not that much. There's only like, I'm trying to remember, 16 chapters, 18 chapters? I can't remember exactly off the top of my head, but <clears throat> you can do it. You can do it this week. And if, if this is challenging for you, if this has been a series like, oh, I'm just, I'm loving this. What, what do I do next? Read the book of John and ask yourself the question, what do I learn about the Father from the Son? What do I learn about the Father from the Son? Because Jesus says, if you want the clearest picture about me, and if you're ever confused, if there's ever a picture of God that you're not really sure of, because the church for way too long has said, Old Testament God, New Testament God, well, we've got to figure out how to kind of mix these things together. And he says, ah, 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 ah. you start with me. You start with me. And then you begin to look elsewhere and be like, how does this fit with this? And if there's a discrepancy, I keep this. I hang on to this. I hang on to this. And I, and I say, God, help me learn what that looks like and what that means. So that's your homework this week. What would I learn about the Father from the Son? Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would help us to discover this for us, that, it, that it's not just something that we gather together and you know, get spoon-fed this stuff, but that you would give, make something in us drive towards 
reading for the, maybe for the very first time with open eyes, what, is, what does Jesus say about who you are? God, help us this week <clears throat> to discover that. Give us the wisdom to know what to do with what we've heard, the courage to act on it. In your name, amen.